This morning, we're in Jeremiah chapter 28. You want to open your Bible or navigate on your tablet or cell phone to Jeremiah chapter 28? We'll look at verses 1 through 17. The topic, when Hananiah breaks Jeremiah's wooden yoke, he replaces it with one made of iron. The title of our message, The Man in the Iron Yoke. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning we've come to experience the fullness of a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, your son. And I pray, Lord, that your spirit would attend the teaching of your word, that as it's read, our hearts would be thrilled and made glad, that we'd realize that though you were talking to and through Jeremiah, the word is just as applicable and alive for us today as it was for the sixth century Jew. And that having come to this place, Lord, we would understand, if nothing else, the depth and breadth of your love for us as lost human beings for whom you died and rose from the dead, that we might have life and that abundantly. We thank you and praise you this morning in Jesus' name and everyone who agreed that, amen. Cigarette warning labels can be hazardous to your health. A recent study concluded that, and I quote, cigarette warnings stimulate an area of the smoker's brain called the nucleus accumbens, otherwise known as the craving spot. And so when a smoker reads the warning on a pack of cigarettes, they get all excited about smoking because it reminds them of smoking cigarettes and they actually want to smoke more. So... Maybe you're thinking that's okay as long as it's a deterrent to non-smokers. Well, it might not be a deterrent to non-smokers either. There is a growing body of research, scientific research, that suggests warning labels in general on cigarettes, on alcohol, on food, and on drugs either have no effect or they have the opposite of the effect intended. If you don't want people to walk on your grass, just let it alone. Nobody is liable to walk, and every now and then somebody will set foot on your grass. If you want them to walk on your grass, the best way to do that is to put up a sign that says, don't walk on the grass. And then you'll have people that are drawn into it who never thought about doing it before. That's the way it worked when I was a kid. And I wanted to get into mischief. If somebody said not to do something, that was an invitation to figure out how to do it and not get caught. And so warning labels, they sound like a good idea. Uh, They may not be. And uh, you're going to find too, if my research is correct, the FDA has just approved more severe warnings for cigarettes. They're going to start having pictures of people with esophageal cancer. And uh, I saw one that had a diseased lung on the picture. Uh, maybe they call the cigarette longer. I don't know. But, and the thing is, it, it, we're not sure if this has any effect or not. Jeremiah had been warning the people of Judah for nearly three decades of God's judgment. He had lately been going around wearing bonds and a yoke around his neck to illustrate their coming captivity in Babylon. He was a sort of living warning label, as if to say warning. The sovereign God has determined that continuing in sin is hazardous to your health. How did the people respond? Well, not only did they ignore his warning, another prophet we'll see in our text claimed that it was a false warning. As Christians, we are called upon to warn non-believers of judgment coming upon this world and upon them individually for sin. How do they respond? 
A great many of them scoff at it and claim that if the Lord were coming to judge sin and sinners, he would have gotten here by now. Well, he is coming. What has prevented him thus far is his long-suffering, meaning he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. While his long-suffering waits, there is an opportunity to continue to warn men and see some saved. When his long-suffering ends, it will quite frankly be terrible. I'll organize my thoughts about chapter 28 around two points. Number one, you warn of judgment hoping God's long-suffering endures. Number two, you warn of judgment knowing God's long-suffering ends. Let's take a look at his long-suffering enduring first in verses one through 11. Ready or not, Jesus is coming was the first Christian bumper sticker I put on my car when I got saved in early 1979. I've been saying it ever since, going on 33 years, which is just about the same amount of time Jeremiah had been warning Judah of God's judgment. I believe it just as strongly as I did then. I believe that the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming and that his coming is imminent. It could occur at any moment. It's only discouraging that Jesus hasn't yet come to resurrect and rapture the church when I forget his long-suffering. He waits for others like us to be saved. I mean, just mathematically, and if you look at a calendar, if, if the Lord had come back in 1978, I wouldn't have gotten saved in 1979. And some of you who've been saved, uh, you know, in the last few years, five years, 10 years, you understand what I'm talking about. Now we have a passion to see the Lord return because the world is so filled with uh, just terrible things. But just a day ago or a week ago or a month ago, a loved one would have been left behind had the Lord come. And so the Lord is long-suffering. And when I get discouraged that he hasn't come back, if I get to putting my head on the pillow tonight and I start to be discouraged that I, you know, the Lord hasn't returned. I remember that all around the world, the gospel has been preached and many millions perhaps even, at least thousands, have come to know Christ this Lord's day. Now Jeremiah's responses in this chapter, they're a good spiritual role model for us to follow when we're trying to remain encouraged about the Lord's long suffering. And so we begin in verse one, And it happened in the same year at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the king of Judah, in the fourth year and in the fifth month, that Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet, who was from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and of all the people, saying, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two full years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And I will bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah who went to Babylon, says the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Hananiah is called the prophet throughout these verses. Almost every time he's referenced, he's called the prophet. Jeremiah never calls him a false prophet. His prophecy will turn out to be wrong and therefore false, but in the meantime, we have to understand he was respected by Jeremiah and by the people. And so Hananiah can represent to us someone who does not rightly divide God's word. He or she is not necessarily a false teacher, 
but they are mishandling the word of God in some way for some reason. Let me give you an example. Recently, it's become popular to question whether or not there is a literal hell. Is there a a real hell that non-believers will be sent to uh, to be tormented for all eternity? Respected popular Bible teachers are suggesting that all non-believers are either saved in the end or they cease to exist. One view is called universalism, that at the end of all things, God just saves everyone, universalism. The other view is called annihilationism. You die in your trespasses and your sins having never received Christ as your savior and God annihilates you and your consciousness as if you never existed in the first place. Now I have to tell you, I wanna say this carefully, I kinda like both of those viewpoints, but they're not true. And the Bible can't be used to substantiate them and so those that are teaching them are mishandling the word of God. One recent author described Jesus' comments about hell this way. He said, Jesus chose strong and terrifying language when he spoke of hell. I believe he chose to speak this way because he loves us and wanted to warn us. So let's not miss the point. He spoke of hell as a horrifying place characterized by suffering, fire, darkness, and lamentation. I believe his intention was to stir a fear in us that would cause us to take hell seriously and avoid it at all costs. The Bible is dramatically clear that there is a place of torment. It was created for the devil and his fallen angels or demons, but that it will also be the final destination of all those who die having rejected Christ. The Bible also says that it is appointed unto men once to die and then after this comes a judgment, so there's no second chance in hell. There's no such thing as universalism, no such thing as annihilationism. It is a mishandling of the word of God. Hananiah's problem wasn't the existence or non-existence of hell, but it was the exercise of God's discipline. Listening to Hananiah, you'd have to say that he ultimately thought there was no need to repent from sin in order to have a right relationship with God. God's people were setting up idols right in the temple. They were oppressing the poor, They were even sacrificing their own children to the pagan gods. Hananiah knew all of this, but his message contained no rebuke, no warning, no correction. If you heard him, you thought everything was gonna be okay, that God would do nothing to correct his people and that you could go on your merry way with no change of heart or direction. So the people were coming into the temple, idolaters, Household idols, idols in the temple. Some of them had sacrificed their own children in the uh, valley there. Uh, and, and they were oppressing the poor. They were, they were in every way sinning against God. They'd been being warned by Jeremiah about it for close to three decades. And then Hananiah comes along and he says, hey, don't worry about it. God's gonna destroy Babylon. This is just a little blip on his radar. Uh, and uh, you're fine just the way you are. Go on your merry way in your idolatry because after all, God loves you, you're his chosen people. That was his message. Now I don't have stats to prove it, but I think more and more believers are living in outright obvious sin with no thoughts of needing to repent in order to avoid God's discipline or to have a right relationship with God. Sin is nothing new. Uh, There's always uh, people sinning and in the body of Christ, people sinning and believers living in sin. What's new is a casual uh, 
almost cavalier attitude about living in sin. As if God isn't going to do anything or doesn't actually care that a person is living in sin because after all, I'm God's chosen person. I'm one of the elect and you know it's not that big a deal. A few times in, in just the last several weeks, uh, people who've had their sin pointed out to them, their response is, well, he who is without sin, let that person cast the first stone. In other words, we're all sinners, what's the big deal? Used to be if you confronted somebody with sin, real sin, you found their sin out, they'd be embarrassed and ashamed and at least realize that they should repent. They might not repent, but they'd they'd at least acknowledge that they needed to repent to be right with God, but that's not happening so much anymore. Christians, professing Christians are just living in sin, going on in sin, thinking that everything is fine, mishandling the word of God. The Hananiah doctrine that God ignores your sin, it's alive and well. Verse five, then the prophet Jeremiah spoke to the prophet Hananiah in the presence of the priests and in the presence of all the people who stood in the house of the Lord. And you and I, if we haven't read ahead, we're thinking this is gonna be rich. Jeremiah is gonna put this guy in his place. I can't wait to hear this. Learn from the master. And then in verse six, the prophet Jeremiah said, amen. Well, that's not what I expected at all. The Lord do so. The Lord perform your words which you have prophesied to bring back the vessels of the Lord's house and all who were carried away captive from Babylon to this place. Quite honestly, I'm humbled by Jeremiah's response because I'd want to fight, I'd want to argue, I'd want to debate, I'd want to defend myself. Why didn't Jeremiah do any of those things? Well, although he prophesied certain judgment to come upon Judah, he didn't relish it. He wasn't looking forward to it. Would to God that Judah might repent and God relent of the judgment that Jeremiah had been proclaiming. Jeremiah for three decades talking about the terrible destruction that was coming upon Judah and upon God's people. But if you were here last week, you saw that there was always in that message a message of repentance. And if you will repent, God can relent of that judgment. And that was Jeremiah's heart. It wouldn't make Jeremiah's prophecies false any more than Nineveh's repentance made Jonah's warnings false. Jonah sent to Nineveh, didn't want to go. He hated the Assyrians. And they were, if you want to hate somebody, the Assyrians were good people to hate. They took everybody captive. They did terrible things to them. They were pretty mean. And, and so God says, go to Nineveh. Jonah says, oh, no way. Tries to go the other way, gets swallowed by a great fish, spit up on the beach, finally preaches the message. What was the problem? The problem was Jonah had a suspicion that the Ninevites might repent. They might repent, God would relent of his judgment. So when he heard, I'm gonna judge Nineveh, I'm gonna give them 40 days and then destroy them, he was ecstatic, he wanted to go on a 40-day vacation and then just read in the paper that Nineveh had been wiped out. God said, I want you to go preach to them. And he was, he was upset that they might get saved. Then he was more upset that they did get saved. And, and so, you know, Jeremiah, it, wouldn't, it wasn't a nullification of his message. If people would have repented, God could relent of uh, the judgment that he had pronounced against them. And he understood this. And his response communicates this. Jeremiah didn't see this as a war between prophets, He saw it as an opportunity to share the heart of God. 
Verse seven, nevertheless, hear now this word that I speak in your hearing and in the hearing of all the people. The prophets who have been before me and before you of old prophesied against many countries and great kingdoms of war and disaster and pestilence. As for the prophet who prophesies of peace, when the word of the prophet comes to pass, the prophet will be known as one whom the Lord has truly sent. He does offer a very gentle apologetic, pointing out that his prophecies were more consistent with what had come prior in the word of God, whereas Hananiah's prophecies were sort of at odds with them because he prophesied peace. Reminds us that comparing scripture with scripture is always a good idea because God doesn't contradict himself. He's consistent in presenting his truth. Certain scriptures taken out of context, read by themselves, are troublesome. Usually if you read before and after and set the context of what's being said and who it's being said to, you can get a better handle on that. And then when you add to that scripture from all over the Bible, commenting on itself, you get a feel for exactly what God is saying. So that's just good Bible reading. And then Jeremiah pointed out, of course, that the ultimate test of the truth of Hananiah's words would be whether or not they actually came to pass. And so this seems very harmonious, everything seems fine, but Hananiah won't leave it alone. And so in verse 10, then Hananiah the prophet took the yoke off the prophet Jeremiah's neck and broke it. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, thus says the Lord, even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon from the neck of all nations within the space of two full years. And the prophet Jeremiah went his way. This is almost an assault, isn't it? I mean, if you, you know, I think if somebody came up here right now and took my iPad and smashed it on the ground, I'd I'd be a little bit more upset than this. I'd say that the ushers are gonna come forward and give me a hand here with this guy, you know, that kind of a thing. And, and so Jeremiah, you know, he's very humble, he's very kind. He says, I love that message. I wish it was true. I'm hoping that it's true. I will point out that it's, you know, kind of not exactly what the prophets have been saying, but let's see what happens. And then Hananiah takes it to the next step. He takes the yoke off of Jeremiah's neck and he breaks it. And, and he says, you know, You're an idiot, basically. And Jeremiah goes his way. God's word, first of all, needs no defending. This is something I think we need to remind ourselves of. God's word is true no matter what others say about it. Our responsibility is to present God's word, all of it. Sometimes I think our explanations of God's word diminish it. You say something to somebody and they don't like it, and then you try and explain it, not necessarily to make it more palatable or you know, you're trying to explain it, but sometimes the word just needs to sink into a person's heart. And our explanation can get in the way. I'm aware of this as a, someone you know, who teaches the Bible. I, I really never want to say anything that doesn't need to be said. I always realized that I said things that didn't need to be said and I try to edit them in my mind, but the idea is just let God's word speak for itself. All have fallen short and of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. What do you mean by that? There's none righteous, no, not one. You're not righteous. What do you mean by that? Well, just think about it. And we can explain things if they need a little bit of illumination, but it's really the word that needs to sink in. Our responsibility, present the word of God, all of it. We're not responsible for the results. We're really not. 
Back in the Old Testament, God at one point told Ezekiel, he said, I want you to tell the souls that are perishing certain things, that's your responsibility. If you don't tell them, I'm gonna hold you responsible for that. The reaction that they have, that's on them. And so we're just responsible for our portion of the work. In Jeremiah's case, it was far more powerful for him to humble himself and let the word speak for itself than to mount a defense. And so Jeremiah said amen to Hananiah's prophecy. He could wish God's long-suffering would endure, giving Judah, or at least certain individuals in Judah, more time to repent. As we end each day, the Lord has not, and, and the Lord hasn't come for us, may we be able to say amen to his long-suffering. Then as we rise with new mercies every morning, may we be about our Father's business knowing his coming for us is imminent. I admit it's not easy to live that way because of discouragements and things that happen in the day and things that are happening in the world. But when, when, you know, in a typical day when I get up in the morning, the Bible proclaims to me that God's mercies for me are new that morning and that he could come at any moment. And I'm to believe that and live in the light of that reality. And if he doesn't come for me like he didn't yesterday, then I get up and do it all again. If I wanna be discouraged about it, it's because I'm forgetting that God is long-suffering and he's giving folks space to repent. The way he gave me and you space to repent up until the time that you got saved. He's doing that for somebody that you love uh, and that you care for. And so remember that. Now, God's long-suffering does end. It's ended in the past, it will end in the future. In the great passage in 2 Peter that discusses God's long-suffering, you come to understand that God's long-suffering must end. He does have to deal with sin. It ended for Sodom and Gomorrah. It ended in the days of Noah. In our own day, it will end when God brings upon the earth the seven-year great tribulation. Meantime, we should think more of the destiny of individuals apart from Christ. They will be lost forever. Jeremiah is next sent to minister to one person, and it's an unlikely person. It's Hananiah. Verse 12, now the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke from the neck of the prophet Jeremiah saying, go and tell Hananiah saying, thus says the Lord, you have broken the yokes of wood, but you have made in their place yokes of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put a yoke of iron on the neck of all these nations that they may serve Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and they shall serve him. I have given him the beasts of the field also. And so uh, this is a time after their confrontation where God gives Jeremiah this word and says, I want you to go to Hananiah. You'd think this would have been more appropriate and have had more impact if Jeremiah had said it publicly at the time of Hananiah's prophecy. You'd think it would have been better for all the people to hear this, not just Hananiah. I mean, after, after all, Hananiah was saying something that was patently false. God hadn't really given him that message. This is the thing that you would have hoped, that I would have thought Jeremiah should have said at the time, but God says, no, I don't want you to say anything. I just want you to say amen and walk away. God, being all wise, thought otherwise. For one thing, God sees hearts in a way that we just can't. He divides, the Bible says, between the soul and the spirit in a person. 
I don't even know what that means. Even some theologians argue whether there is such a thing as a soul versus a spirit. They just say that your body and spirit and the soul is part of the spirit. And so we can't even agree whether your body, soul, and spirit or body and spirit or body and soul. God says, yeah, I'm gonna divide between the soul and the spirit. I can see those tiny parts of your heart and mind that you don't even know about. You and I think we know ourselves so well, we don't know ourselves at all. In so many ways we deceive ourselves. God is always working in our hearts. I met a young man this week He's having a hard time. We put him on a train uh, back to Albuquerque to uh, be with his Christian family. He was an explosives ordnance specialist uh, recently over in the Middle East, diffusing uh, and disposing of bombs. And he was talking about some issues in his life, things he didn't understand. And I I believe that the Lord showed me this. It's a kind of a crude illustration, but I started to talk to him. I, I thought he'd understand it, and he did. I said, I said, hey, these devices that you come across, they're all a little different, right? And he goes, yeah, that's true. He goes, there's some, you know, similarities sometimes, but everyone's a little bit different, and you have to really think through what you're doing, and you have to be extremely careful trying, obviously trying to diffuse or dispose of uh, these crude bombs, and I, I said, you know, I believe that the human heart can be compared to that. Every one of them's a little bit different. And God is dealing a little bit differently in each one. And you, you can't just go in and cut the red wire first thing. I mean, that's what, that's what we think as Christians. God, just go in and cut the red wire. You know, whoever it is we're praying for, get in there, cut the red wire. And God says, yeah, the red wire is gonna cause them to explode. The red wire, that's the exact wire you don't wanna cut right now. In fact, I can't cut any wires based on where they're at and what they're thinking. I'm still working in that situation. I'm, I'm gonna keep them from imploding right now so that I can cut the green wire a little bit later on. And, and it's true. The human heart's an, an immensely complicated organ. I'm not talking about the physical heart. I'm talking about the spiritual heart. And God is working in each and every heart. And God knew on that particular Sabbath when Jeremiah was confronted by Hananiah, God knew the hearts of all the people gathered there, the heart of Hananiah, the heart of Jeremiah, and he knew that the best way to diffuse that situation and to dispose of that situation that would give him the most glory wasn't to have an apologetic face-off and a debate, but for Jeremiah to humble himself and to display Christian character and to let Hananiah actually make a fool of himself. And and that was God's prerogative, and that's what he did. We see, too, that Jeremiah was willing to take a hit when necessary. I'm sure the large crowd in the temple that Sabbath day thought Hananiah had put Jeremiah in his place. If it was a prophetic smackdown, Hananiah looked to have won. We know better. But at the time, and we have hindsight, obviously, we know what happened. We know Jeremiah is one of the big guns. But man, on that Sabbath day when Hananiah took the yoke off his neck and stomped on it and broke it, that seemed like a defeat up to that point. And who walks away from something like that? The man of God who's being led by God. Because God requires one thing and that is faithfulness. Jeremiah was faithful to deliver the message God gave him and he was faithful to keep his mouth shut when God didn't tell him to say something. He was equally faithful to represent the heart of God. In this case, that meant emphasizing that God was indeed long-suffering by saying amen 
and walking away. So he wasn't, he wasn't agreeing with Hananiah's message. He wasn't saying it's a true prophecy, but he was agreeing with the sentiment of it, would to God that he would continue to be long-suffering. In the end, when I stand before Jesus Christ, it'll be one-on-one, and it won't matter what other people thought about me. Even if I don't think I care what other people think about me, I do. And all of us are on some spectrum to where you know, we really do care about how others see us and what they think about us and what they're saying about us. But one day, it's just gonna be you and Jesus. Right now, I may think my life is littered with broken yokes as others seem to have gotten the upper hand. As things that I have built for the Lord, people have just come up and taken them and stomped them on the ground and I'm just, all around, I'm just standing in rubble because of what uh, people have done. But I won't be responsible for what others did with the truth of God's word. I'm only gonna be responsible for my handling of God's word, for my faithfulness. I can't emphasize this enough. In almost every other area of life, we look at raw results to gauge success. And that's, it's necessary in other areas of life. If I open up a restaurant, chances are here in Hanford, I'm gonna go the way of all restaurants. How many great restaurants have, well, it's not all so great, but you know, people, they insist on opening restaurants. They get the equipment and they get the loan and they get the food and they get everything and then and I drive by and I think, man, if you want that, you better get it right now because th- those people are going down the tubes in about two weeks. If they're there a month later, to me, that's a success. But so many restaurants have come and gone and, and if somebody comes and, and, and you meet them at church here maybe today and, they say, and you say, hey, what have you been doing? I opened up a restaurant. Oh yeah, w- w- which one? Uh, it's that one that closed down. Yeah, what do you think about it? Oh, it's a great success. For what, like 30 minutes or what, you know? No, it's just, I'm, I consider it successful. No, you have to say, no, it's not, it's closed. No one's eating there anymore. And so out in the world, we have this, you know, you drop your car off to be fixed. You pick it up, it still doesn't run. It's a, I consider it a success. I didn't make it worse. I mean, so we, we gauge things. We bring that into our spiritual life and we look at results around us rather than what God is doing in us and through us because the result you want to look for in your walk with the Lord is the fruit of the Spirit, fruit that's promised you as a believer. Spiritual fruit is produced as you yield to the Lord, abiding in Him the way a vine abides in the branch. This beautiful analogy that the Lord uses from agriculture. So I've got this little dwarf orange tree out in the backyard. And uh, every year I get like eight or 10 oranges off of it. But it's because I don't do anything to it. And so it struggles, you know, it doesn't get, it doesn't get cultivated, it doesn't get watered like it should, it doesn't get all this stuff. But I never go out there and have the branches tell me that they're struggling. The branches never look at me and say, please help us, you know. They're just branches. It's up to the husbandman to cultivate and to prune and to do all of that. And if, if the husbandman, if the, if the farmer does all of that, he supplies everything that is needed and then the branches just produce fruit. They produce it in abundance. 
And that's the Christian life. The Christian life isn't a factory where I churn out things. It's a farm where God produces things through me as I yield to him and abide in him. And something else that becomes important to realize about this, if that's true, and since that's true, since fruit is produced by me abiding in Jesus, I can't produce fruit in anyone else's life. Only Jesus can produce spiritual fruit in someone's life. I can provide an environment in which people hear the word of God and are cultivated and watered and things like that, but ultimately a person has to make their own decision whether they're going to yield to Christ or not and whether they're going to produce spiritual fruit. That's between them and the Lord. I can't do anything to accomplish it. Verse 15, then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah, the prophet, hear now, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, but you make this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will cast you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you have taught rebellion against the Lord. So Hananiah the prophet died in the same year, in the seventh month. By now I think we can read this and understand that Jeremiah would be weeping while delivering such news. I don't think he was excited to go tell Hananiah that God had decided to kill him and take him home. This wasn't a moment to gloat at being the real prophet whom God was going to vindicate. I mean, you know, Jeremiah didn't go and say, hey, I've got good news and bad news. Good news is I'm a real prophet. The bad news is you don't have funeral arrangements made. I mean, it's not that kind of a thing at all. This is sad. It's extremely sad. And if you look at the timing of it, Jeremiah says it'll be within this year. Well, they were already into the year. Hananiah died within the next two months. After Jeremiah spoke to him, he was dead within two months. It may seem morbid to you. It's not. But I think we must assume that the people we encounter, all of them, no matter their ages and relative health, could die at any moment because anybody can die at any moment. The gospel is a warning that if they die apart from faith in Jesus Christ, they have forfeited heaven and they will perish eternally in hell despite so-called prophets in every generation who want to say that there is universalism or annihilationism. And so Hananiah is an example of every man in this case. Every one of us, you know, life is a vapor. It appears for a moment. It's like a puff of smoke, uh, James says. We don't know how long anyone is going to live. We have an expectation based on, you know, certain factors, but um, anyone can die at any moment. That coupled with the understanding that the Lord could come at any moment and that God is long-suffering, these all become very powerful motivators for us to stay on top of our spiritual game and to be ready to minister as God opens doors because you literally don't know when the Lord is coming and when you're gonna be able to talk to a person again or if you're gonna be able to talk to a person again. And, and so it, 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 makes, it, it adds an excitement to your life. Maybe you're feeling a little like Jeremiah. I, I think Jeremiah, you know, we, he's called the weeping prophet. Uh, on the surface, you think I'm nothing like him, but I think a lot of us feel a little bit like Jeremiah as we get to know him. You've taken a stand for the Lord, but it seems as if nothing is happening, or worse, the things that are happening uh, seem contradictory. Does it seem as if the Hananiahs of this age are prospering while you're being embarrassed? Does it seem like your yokes, the things you built for the Lord at his direction, 
are simply broken and littered at your feet. I mean, think of Jeremiah. This is a really powerful image. The image of him in the yoke is powerful. Going around Jerusalem, people would say, oh, that's, there's Jeremiah portraying to us that the yoke of Babylon has come and that for our sin, we're going to be held captive by the king of Babylon. It was almost, in a sense, a culmination of his message, this visual that, that God had given him. And then Hananiah comes along and he assaults him. I, literally, I mean, he has to get near him and grab things off of him and he assaults him and he takes it. I don't know how he broke it. I don't know if he just threw it down or pulled it apart or hammered it or axed it. I don't know. But he broke this yoke at Jeremiah's feet. And there is Jeremiah, the 30-year prophet. No one likes him. He's been in all kinds of trouble. He's doom and gloom. But he stood for the Lord and he's, he's spoken forth the word of the Lord and he's taken his stand and he's standing in a bunch of rubble. His whole message is rubble. It's defeated, it's destroyed at his feet. And all the people are looking at him and thinking, hey, yeah, what, maybe, maybe Hananiah is the real prophet. Well, who? Thank you, Hananiah. This is all starting to bother us. And there's Jeremiah defeated. And then he doesn't even do anything about it. He says, amen. I wish that were true. In this case, the particular prophecy. And he walks away. Later, goes and talks to Hananiah personally, sorrowfully, to tell him that he's wrong. And so maybe you feel that way, like everything that you've built for the Lord has been destroyed. Yogi Berra said, it ain't over till it's over. And he was right. When it's over, it'll be just you and the Lord. We read that everything hidden will be revealed. That's, I, some people think that's terrifying. I think it's wonderful. Everything hidden will be revealed. You, uh, you'll understand everything. I don't know that you'll care to understand everything because you, you'll be there in front of Jesus and it kind of cancels out you know, any question. You know, people say, oh, when I get to heaven, I'm gonna ask God this. No, you know you're not. Really? That's your whole goal in life is to get to, I got saved, I want to go to heaven because I have this big question for God. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? You know, that kind of a thing. You're not going to have any questions for God, you're not. But everything hidden will be revealed. You'll realize it all made sense. I, I see what God was doing with every heart at that moment. It will all make sense why you said what you did or didn't say what you should have or all of it will just make sense. At the same time, the Bible says he wipes away every tear. There won't be any crying in heaven and every tear you've ever uh, had will be wiped away. You won't care to be vindicated because you'll realize the only person that you needed to please ever was Jesus. No other opinion but his matters. And you'll realize that throughout your entire walk with him, all he's ever wanted to do was bring you to the place where he could look at you and say, well done. You did what I asked you to do. I'm not interested in the result. I don't care what other people did with it. You did what I asked you to do. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Let's pray.